After in some weeks you prepare to preach and it, it, it's just exciting because you know that you are uh, teaching something. Like last week, adoption, I mean, how, how good is that? We are God's children. Uh, if you can go out of here with a smile on your face, I didn't do my job properly last week. And then you get weeks like this where you get a passage like that and you think it's going to be hard to hear. It's going to be hard to preach. And so I need to pray for God's help for me and for you. So why don't we bow our heads together and just commit our time to him. Our Father, we come to uh, important things, uh, deep and profound things uh, that are challenging and hard to hear. Um, would you please be uh, with me to speak with the authority and power that you give uh, through your word. Please uh, be with each of us to hear with hearts that are tuned to your voice and love your words. Please help us to listen as those who are already your children and precious to you, to hear these things as the loving words of a heavenly Father, that we might be conformed ever increasingly to the likeness of Christ for the sake of your glory and for our eternal good. Amen. You'll find that line on the back of the notice sheet of where we're going, if that's helpful to you. If you're new amongst us here at Christchurch, or you've been away for some time, you've joined us towards the end of an eight-week series. We're looking at the order of salvation. That is, we're thinking about how it is that God saves us. It's our usual practice as a church to preach through books of the Bible because we want to allow God to speak to us the things that he wants to say. And he's given us the books of the Bible in the way he has. And so we listen to him in that way. And so if you're a regular here, you might be thinking, we've, we've broken that pattern to do a doctrinal series. Why are we doing this series? What's the value of all the stuff we've been looking at over these last five weeks of this series for when you get back out to the world this afternoon or tomorrow? I hope that today you'll go out of here knowing exactly why we've been doing this series. Today we come to something of a turning point in our series. We've been thinking all through about what God has done, historically past tense, to save us. Uh, he chose us, uh, called us. He uh, gave us the new birth through, uh, through the regeneration of the Spirit. He uh, justified us. And last week we thought about how God has given us a new identity as his children. If you are a Christian here this morning, that is who you are. A child of the living God. But the question is, how does that change things on the ground, in day-to-day -day life. How does all of that truth change me? Uh, well, today we've caught up. That is, uh, this week and next week, we're going to be thinking about uh, living the Christian life today while we wait for the new creation. That final sermon we're going to look at in a couple of weeks' time, we'll think about our final glorification, uh, and that'll be an exciting uh, Sunday, uh, believe you me. Uh, so the first five talks are about what God has done for us. The final talk is about where we're heading. And, and in between are these two sermons in a kind of mini-series, if you like, about living the Christian life to the end. You can see that that's Paul's question at the beginning of our passage this morning. Have a look down at verse 1. Having just spoken in, in chapter, chapter 1 to 4 about, uh, about redemption through faith in Jesus, and, and chapter 5 we had allowed praying in him, didn't we? That God in his mercy saved uh, enemies uh, to be his, his family, his, uh, his friends. 
Paul then asks the question, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Is it okay for a Christian's life to be characterised by ongoing sin? That's the question. Or, or perhaps more, uh, more pointedly, should a Christian go on sinning? That's what Paul's asking, isn't it? The logic of the question has two parts, I think. In the first place, uh, Paul has asserted over and over again that the Christian is free from punishment for sin because Jesus already paid the price. We're free to do whatever we want, right? There's no, no consequences for us. In the second place, God's grace is magnified when he saves unworthy people like Paul, the, the, the murderer. So if we go on living in sin, there's more sin to forgive, and so God's glory looks all the bigger. So should we go on sinning? That's the logic. It seems watertight. Paul says uh, in response, by no means. Absolutely not. So there's our question. If that's not the way to live as a Christian, what is the way to live as a Christian and why? And here, I think, is the value of doing this whole series. So we come to a talk like this one and next week, and we have some context for answering the question. I hope the answer is fairly obvious already to those who've been in all of the talks so far. Uh, last week, we saw, didn't we, that we are not sinners anymore. That's not who we are. We're children of God. Back in week one, we saw that God not only chose us to be free from the guilt of sin, justification, but from sinning itself, new creation. That's the plan, that's the aim, that's where we're heading, that's the final sermon. Hopefully you're, you're already getting an appetite for it. Being free from sinning is what salvation is all about. For Christians to be saved and then indulge in sin makes not the slightest sense at all. And yet we do sin, don't we? Every one of us. Sometimes we feel the temptation to sin very strongly. So we need to take a look at Romans chapter 6 to understand the doctrine of sanctification. Let me begin by defining terms, because last week we looked at adoption, and we understand the concept of adoption, don't we? It's a common word and a common idea in our culture. But before we jump in and think about these things, we need to understand what the word that sanctification means, because it's not a common word, even for Christians to use, is it? So we tell you about the, the word, or word group, in the New Testament. The noun and there's a related verb, to be sanctified are translated with a variety of English words in, in your New Testaments. And you'll know these words, they're, they're all over the New Testament. Uh, sometimes it's sanctified or sanctification. Sometimes it's, it's holy or holiness. Uh, sometimes it's the word translated saints, which just means the holy people of God. Uh, so uh, when God is said to be holy, 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 in Revelation 4.11, or Jesus is called the Holy One of God in Mark 1.24, or the new creation is called holy in Revelation 22.19. The same thing is being said. They are perfectly set apart from sin, absolutely pure and spotless. The new creation is holy because it is set apart entirely, wholly for God. It is holy, wholly holy, 
Try saying that three times without your teeth in. To be holy is to be like God. It is to be separated from sin. And Hebrews 13.12 tells us that Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Jesus died to make us holy. The cross is about our holiness. That's why we're called saints throughout the letters of the New Testament. It's not because we're the super holy people. It's because we are God's holy people. So that's the general use of the word. It means holiness, set-apartness. But let me make a further distinction before we jump into Romans properly. Theologians break down sanctification into two separate groups. Two parts that I think are both here in Romans chapter 6. We'll see that in a moment. On the one hand, we talk about definitive or positional sanctification. Those are big words. It basically means you are already holy. Because of something that's happened at a particular point in the past, you were set apart for God. You are holy. On the other hand, we talk about progressive sanctification. Though we are holy, set apart for God from the moment of our conversion, we are not as godly as we should be or will be. And progressive sanctification describes the Christian life as an upward trajectory towards the perfection that we will have with God in the end. We are to become increasingly godly. And you'll know that that idea is all over the New Testament. And so we need to address it here. In other words, sanctification is about bearing the family likeness. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Reflect him. Be like him. That's the target. Be the true children of God that you are. So how are we going to do that? Because if we're honest, living as holy people is hard to remember to do, let alone to actually do a lot of the time, isn't it? And so the first thing that Romans 6 commands us to do is remember who you are. Remember who you are. Verse 2 states it simply, I think, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? That's the idea. Uh, Something has happened. You can't live that way anymore. Uh, Verse 11 is Paul's command to us, uh, in light of uh, what comes before, count yourselves dead to sin. That word count, it means think of yourself. In other words, remember who you are. Of course, the problem we have here is understanding what the word what it means to be dead to sin. And that's what the, the intervening verses are all about. What does that mean, Paul? Tell us what it means to be dead to sin. Well, let's follow the idea through the passage and see if we can unpack it, shall we? Paul begins explaining it in verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were baptised into the name of the the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, right? We saw that a couple of weeks ago with Zach and Barnaby. Our baptism is the symbol of our inward regeneration, our our faith union with Christ. But but still, what does it mean to be baptised into his death? It's a very odd thing to say, isn't it? Verse 4. 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. The picture of baptism is is of being buried with Christ, washed clean, and then rising to new life. But Paul is speaking of something more than a symbolic washing here. It is not a symbolic burial, but an actual burial. So verse 5 talks about being united with him in his death. And we're still going, Paul, what on earth are you talking about? It's so difficult to get your head around this idea of being buried with Jesus. Verse 6, I think, explains it for us. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we might no longer be slaves to sin. Let's start with the easy bits of that verse, shall we? Before our conversion, every single person is a slave to sin. Cannot do anything but what the sinful desire wants. That's what Paul explains for us in verse 12, if you have a look down with me, when he talks about sin reigning in the flesh. It's described as obeying its evil desires. Our natural self desires to do the wrong thing, and we just follow it. We go where we go. We're slaves to sin. When Jesus died on the cross, the rule of that of sin is broken. Our sinful nature, and therefore the rule of sin in our lives, is done away with. How? Have a look down again, verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him. We were on the cross. We died. Jesus came into the world, took our nature, and died for our sins. And by faith we were united to him, not only today, as he's in glory, but we were united to him on the cross, so that we can say, not only was our sin on the cross, but we ourselves were on the cross. Our old nature Just as we received the new birth, so we have experienced the old death. If the old self is ruled by sin, then the only way to break the power of sin is to kill the old nature. In order to have new life, you have to experience the old death. That's why this is called definitive sanctification. It happened once at a definite point in time. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, you were killed and brought to new life. So uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 describes our sanctification like this. God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit through belief in the truth. You were saved when you believed the truth. You were sanctified. As you heard the word of the gospel and believed it, the Spirit brought you into union with Christ. He brought you to a new birth and at the same time crucified the old self. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, then you have a new relationship with sin. It doesn't rule you. It doesn't have dominion anymore. In fact, you are to have nothing to do with it at all anymore. It belongs to your old self, not your new self. That's why Paul can write to those very imperfect Christians in Corinth and call them, right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, uh, the sanctified in Christ Jesus. Or Peter writes to the elect exiles and calls them those sanctified by the Spirit. It's past tense. It's done. You are sanctified. 
You are holy. You are children of the living God. You are perfect in his sight. Because of the cross, you have a new relationship with, to the law, justification. You have a new relationship to God, your adoption. And now you have a new relationship to sin. You are set apart from it. It does not have any part in you. Let me illustrate this, if I can, from uh, 1 Corinthians. Just here, a book that has a lot to, do, to say about sanctification. You remember last week I said that we are no longer defined as sinners. 1 Corinthians 6, I think, makes this point very clearly. Verse 9, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. It is what you were. It was fitting at one point in time to describe them in terms, in terms of their sinfulness. They were adulterers. They were drunkards. But no longer. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are not what you were. As I was preparing to come out this morning, I spotted this book, uh, Wes Hill's Washed and Waiting. Uh, Wes is a, a same-sex attracted Christian. And the title of his book is How to Live as a Christian, a Faithful Christian, While Struggling with Temptation. And the title of the book is Washed. You were washed. It's what you were. It's not what you are anymore. You were washed and waiting for the new creation. It's a spot on title, isn't it? Sometimes we think about application in a sermon as you need to do something. Go and pray more, read your Bible more, good things to do, by the way. But, but there's always something to do, isn't there? And so much of the series we've done so far will probably have felt like it was application-less for us because it's mostly been about rearranging our mental furniture, restructuring how we think of ourselves. And so it is here, Romans 6, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin. If you want victory over your sin, the first thing you have to do is to think differently. Realise you are no longer slaves to sin. You were saved from that way of life. Made part of a different family. Think like it. So Paul looks back and he says, remember who you are. And he looks forward and says, remember where you're going. Washed and waiting. Remember where you're going. Here I'm going to say a lot less. Partly because the passage says less and partly because... We've got a whole sermon on this in two weeks' time, so come back for that. I'm going to keep my powder dry. But I do want us to see the role that the future plays on our present. Uh, Paul, again, begins with Jesus' physical bodily resurrection. Verse 4, have a look. He was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. And Paul then makes the connections. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our future has a bodily resurrection just like Jesus's. So the question then is, what sort of resurrection is that? Verse 9. Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Now just take a moment to let that sink in. Everybody ends in death, don't they? Thoroughly depressing. Totally inevitable. Everybody ends in death. Jesus cannot 
die again. Death no longer has mastery over him, verse 9. Death is the punishment for sin. Where there is no sin, there is no punishment. And so Christ's physical body can never die again because he has died once for all to, to do away with death. So let me ask you, do you believe in the bodily resurrection from the dead? Do you? Because if you do, if you trust that Jesus' death and resurrection is for you, you can be certain that you will have a glorious bodily resurrection just like his. Imperishable and eternal. Free from death, decay, frailty, pain. Free from sin, utterly, utterly free. Can't wait, can you? So Christian, who are you? You are a child of the living God. You are free from the dominion of sin. And one day soon you will be utterly free from the presence of sin. It's who you are, it's where you're going. Which means right now we live in what we might call the overlap of the ages. This section of Romans is all about living in the overlap of the ages. At the old age of sin and corruption, which is coming to an end when Jesus returns, the age of temptation and the devil at work in this world, it remains. And we are still bodily creatures. We still live in our sinful flesh, prone to sin. We still live in the age of death. We haven't got our resurrection bodies yet. But we do also have the resurrection life in us. A life that began in our conversion and will go on for eternity. The old has gone and has died and it's been buried with Christ and the new has come already. Not in its fullness, but in its reality. For sure. We live as Christians with both principles at work in us, don't we? That's why the Christian life is more of a battle than anybody else's life. Everybody else just follows whatever impulse is in them. And we have to fight one impulse to fight for the other. That's why Paul asks the question in verse 1, doesn't he? Because he knows that the first question anybody asks when we hear that the gospel is of free grace is, does that mean I can do whatever I want? Just go with the sinful flow. Is that okay, Paul? And Paul says no. Remember who you are. Remember where you're going. And therefore, third point on your handouts, be who you really are. Now Paul follows up the command in verse 12. Uh, uh, so follows up, follow up the command in verse 11 to think differently with a series of commands about how we're going to behave. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The power of sin is broken. It does not have to win anymore. But we still live in bodies that are subject to death. And if we throw up our hands and just go with the flow, we will go in the way of death. So verse 12, don't let it. Verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument for wickedness. Now that is pretty full on, isn't it? No part of yourself. It's easy, I think, to, to think as a, as a Christian um, 
God, you can have this and this and this area of my life, but I just want to keep control of this bit for now. Whether that's uh, sex and relationships, whether that's uh, our money, whether that's our ambition, uh, some aspect of worldly living in any case. I want to keep that one back. You can have most of me, but I want to keep that bit for myself. And that, my friends, is a way to fall away from Christ. That is the parable of the sower writ large, and we'll come to look at that next week. Strangled by the cares of this world. And Paul says, don't offer any part of yourself to sin. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Brothers and sisters, this is in no way optional. We have to fight sin in every part of our lives. Paul makes this very plain in the rest of the chapter. So at verse 13, here picks up the language from verse 6 of being ruled uh, by, by sin. The old self was described as slaves to sin, and that's an idea he develops again in verse 16. Either you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you're a slave to obedience to God, which leads to righteousness. Two sorts of slavery. You're a slave to something. Okay? How are you going to think of yourself? You are going to obey something. Either the devil or Jesus. Which are you going to choose? That's the option. Choose and then live as though you belong to that kingdom. Pick one. Don't try and live with a foot in both camps. You know, they're, they're like two ships parting, getting further and further away. There's only so long you can stand on two ships that are going away from each other before you fall in, right? Um, it matters because slavery to righteousness, look at this, verse 19. Just as you used to live as slaves of... Uh, as up to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. That word sanctification there. Set-apartness. Progressive sanctification. As you think about who you are, and you give yourself as slaves to God, to do his will, you will grow in holiness. Grow in, in godliness. And that matters. Because verse 22, take a look at verse 22 with me. Now that you have been set free from sin, past tense, definitive sanctification, and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, that is, progressive sanctification, and the result is eternal life. Where are you going? Eternal life is at the end of one path. It's only at the end of the path you're on if the path you're on is the narrow way to godliness and pursuit of Christ. Let me state this as clearly as I can. The Bible expects every Christian to fight sin. The mark of a true Christian is one who is growing in holiness. I completely understand that that can feel like a very up and down thing. I also understand that when, when you become a Christian it often feels like the gap between you and God is this big and then one day you have a kind of Isaiah 6 epiphany and you realise the gap between you and God was always this big and so you feel like as you grow in your knowledge of how holy God is you feel like you're getting further away from God God keeps you humble that way while in fact the Christian life is a, a broadly upward trajectory if you're a Christian you will be growing in holiness yes it feels like an up and down thing it'll be doing this day by day 
but you will be growing in holiness if you're a, a real Christian. And those are the people that get to heaven, who are living out their holiness now, waiting for the day when Jesus makes us perfect. You won't reach perfection or anything close to it this life, my friends. Now, we don't do this alone. At chapter 8, Paul talks about uh, that this is what it means to live by the Spirit. This is a, a Spirit-empowered thing. You don't do this alone. It is to live in the realm of the Spirit, the dominion of the Spirit. It is by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Uh, James tells us, doesn't he, that, that faith without appropriate works is dead faith and cannot save. We don't do it alone, but we do have to do it to make holiness, godliness, a real priority for us. We have to produce fruit. So Jesus tells in the parable of the sower, doesn't he, that there are three types of people in the church and only one produces kingdom fruit. Again, we'll look at that again next week, but that's a scary thought, isn't it? Galatians 5 tells us that the, the Spirit is given to us to produce gospel fruit, which is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 1 Timothy 2.15 talks about three marks of those who are going to be saved at the final judgment. Faith, love, and holiness. Sanctification. Are we to glorify God by sinning? No. It's an absurd question, isn't it? We are to glorify God by becoming more and more glorious. More and more like Jesus, isn't that right? To become what God has already made us. And so if you're a Christian here at all this morning, this will have scared you a little bit, I hope. Because you'll know I'm not perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. Far from it. I'm extraordinarily aware of, of many of the sins in my life. You'll feel very keenly the battle with sin and you'll know sometimes you fail. You know that there are two impulses at work in us, to do good and to do ill, the, the, the flesh and the spirit. And this passage tells us that we cannot live as slaves to sin anymore, but alive to God in the spirit. The purpose of my sermon this morning is not to tell you to do this in your own strength. That would be a danger, wouldn't it? I'd just screw myself and really try hard. Come on! And you'll feel like that as you leave here this, this morning. And by the time you get home, you'll have completely forgotten to, 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 to scrunch those fists up and give it some... Friends, God has already set you apart as holy. He's already broken the power of sin in your life. You just didn't realise it. And by his spirit, he's powerfully working in every believer to produce fruit. That's what he wants to do. That's what God, with all the power that is at work in us, is trying to do. And we just need to play our part. I'm not going to say you do it in your own strength. It is God's work. And he gets the glory. But I do want to wake us up to the need to grow in godliness. To stir up a desire in us to do this, to want to do it, because that is who we are. So let me ask you, where are you making progress in the fruit of the Spirit? How is the Spirit growing your godliness? And what are you praying for and what are you working towards? This is only part one of our two-part mini-series. We'll think about perseverance Making it to the end of the Christian life next week. 
And this week, I just want us to, to have time to meditate. To spend a week really honestly reflecting on these things for ourselves. To be determined to keep going and keep growing. I want you to recommit yourself this morning. There's only about 18 minutes left of this morning. But this morning, to fight. To live out who you already are. God has made you his holy people. He has broken the power of sin so that you can make progress. You can have victory over sins that have dogged you for years because the Spirit is in you. He is committed to perfecting us. And he asks us to walk in the narrow way until we get there. Shall we pray for God's help? Our loving and merciful Heavenly Father, Thank you that you've made us your children. Thank you that you've broken the power of sin in our lives. And we so much need to own this truth. To be transformed in our thinking. To be empowered to fight. There may be some here this morning who are not yet Christians, who've never known the power of, of you breaking sin in their lives. Please draw them to be your children, break the power of sin, and give them a new heart to want to live for you. Others of us have become tired. We've been at the Christian life for a long time and we've become tired of the fight. Our Father, renew us. Give us fresh strength and a fresh commitment this morning to fight for godliness, that you might get all the glory in the church as we manifest what it is to be your children. Help us to, to teach each other, encourage each other, look out for each other, hold each other to account that we might be the holy people you've made us. And keep us yours until the day when Christ returns and we get to see that perfection. Finally, how we long for it, our Father. Please bring it soon. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond.